Well, we're just uh, wanting to uh, continue our series today on how do I. We've talked about how do I handle disappointment and how do I handle anxiety. And today we're going to talk about anger. How do I handle anger? Or even a better title would be, how can I be angry properly and in the right way? I think that you'll notice that there is a pattern here, that these are very, very common things that believers in Jesus, those who want to walk close to Jesus, we struggle with these things. We wrestle with anxiety. We struggle with our disappointments. And we can often deal with anger that's expressed in ways that are not helpful and did not build up our relationships. So I want to start this morning by comparing two moments in time. A moment that belonged to a man named Cain and a moment that bears your name and my name today. In Genesis 4, we see Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices to God. In Genesis 4, we see Cain and Abel, they're bringing sacrifices to God. Now, why were they doing this? We're really not told. We could, I think, probably safely assume that it's something that they had seen modeled for them uh, by their parents and that they had perhaps been told of the fall and that what God had done as a result of their sin, that there was an animal that was slain so the animal's skins could cover them. And as they were moving forward, they continued the practice of making offerings um, uh, to God. The understanding would have been that, uh, that it was the shedding of blood that deals with sin. Well, on this occasion, Abel brings the sacrifice of one of the lambs of his flock, and that was his primary area of work. Cain brings an offering of the produce of the the field. He was an agricultural person, so he brought that gift. Now, this is probably a change. Again, these are grown young men who have seen this acted out, and yet Cain decides to bring a different kind of offering this time. He brings the sacrifice of the fruits of the cursed earth. Now, we could spend a whole message on Cain and Abel and talk about what those sacrifices tell us about the gospel, but that would be beside the point this morning. The important thing here is for us to focus on the experience of Cain. And I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, here's the moment that we're talking about this morning. In verse 5, it says of God that but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry. First time the word shows up in our scriptures. Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now that word, if you do well, in the actual language, it's if you offer well. He's saying, just 
Just get a lamb and come and offer properly. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. What, what was crouching at the door? The things that are always crouching at the door of our, of our hearts. Perhaps his anger was, was fueled by disappointment at first and a, maybe a perceived injustice. So far, so good. We all experience those kinds of things. We can be frustrated, disappointed. We can misunderstand. Anger can flare. It's common. But if we stay with the anger, if we nourish it rather than extinguish it, then the things that are crouching at the door begin to make their way into our thoughts, our hearts, things like resentment and pride and malice and hatred and even violence. Now, fast forward a couple of thousand years to the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church. The moment in Genesis belonged to Cain. This moment belongs to you and me. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and sin not, or do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger is a powerful emotion. It is not in itself something sinful when directed or pointed in the right direction. Anger is entirely appropriate in many occasions. In Mark 3, we find Jesus in the synagogue. And there is a man there with a withered hand. We can imagine it was just gnarled and useless, and it had just it, it was uh, ugly to look at and painful to experience. And Jesus sees this man, and his heart goes out to him. Then he looks around at the Pharisees and religious leaders who are watching him. Why are they watching him? Because it's the Sabbath. And they're waiting to see if Jesus is going to heal this man on the Sabbath. They don't care one bit about this man. They don't care about his pain. They don't care about his heartache. They don't care about his loss of income or work. They don't care what he's going through. What they care about is the man-made religious system that they had imposed over people. And all they were concerned about was trying to catch Jesus in the act of breaking the law as they had come to interpret it and impose it. And Jesus looks at him, look at verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger. Wow, I don't think I'd want to see that. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he was healed. He was restored. We can be angry at injustice and sin 
when we see it, which is good, as long as it's focused on the sin. The anger of Jesus here was not with these men personally, individually. He was angered by this man-made system that laid burdens on these people rather than loving them. These were people who should have been free to love others and to help others and to encourage others. And instead, they walked around policing others and laying burdens on them. And Jesus is angry at that. He's angry at that system that's controlling these people and damaging others. He was grieved that it was obscuring God's glory. Oswald Sanders said this in the quotes in your notes, Righteous anger is not selfish and does not center on the pain you currently feel. To be free of such sin, such anger must be zealous for truth and purity with the glory of God as its chief objective. Let me tell you something. There are plenty of people out there who are zealous for truth Zealous for purity, but they are more zealous for being right than for the glory of God. It is one thing to pursue truth, one thing to pursue purity. It is one thing to stand for something and to correct injustice. We're standing in injustice when we see it. But far too much of the anger we see displayed in our world today online, social media, and other places, that anger is not anger that is concerned at all with the glory of God and the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. It's anger that's centered on self. It's anger that wants to be right and prove oneself right. I, I, I listen to people in different conversations or threads of conversation. Christians are terrible about Especially, listen, especially, especially Christians on doctrinal issues. They are terrible about this. They will fight with each other and fight with each other, and, and they will basically, well, not basically, they will actually call people morons or idiots or, or apostates or obviously you don't know God because you think this way. It's, it's embarrassing, but they are so concerned with proving their point that they're willing to sacrifice their brothers and sisters on the altar of their being right. There is a time to stand for being right if being right enhances and upholds the glory of God in the face of something that is trying to diminish or attack His glory. But that's not the case most often. So we have to be careful that we are truly about the glory of God is our objective. Uh, this kind of anger we call indignation. Indignation. And, and listen, Christians should be indignant, righteously angry with systems or policies that, that damage people and obscure God's glory. We should be angry over the discarding of unborn children 
over the redefinition of marriage and the erasure of God-created genders. We should be angry at racism in every form and the merciless sex trafficking that goes on around the world and in our own backyard. We should be angry that people are trapped in cycles of poverty that damage families and communities. Thank God, thank God that anger has rightly motivated men and women to act on behalf of the oppressed and to bring about change. Where would we be today without some of those who stood against the tide and in indignant, righteous anger said, this must change. This is damaging people. And this is not the glory of God. One of the quotes in your bulletin, I think it's in the notes too this morning, is from the late evangelical leader, Anglican John Stott. He said this, I go further and say that there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant and not tolerant, angry and not apathetic. If God hates sin, His people should hate sin too. If evil arouses His anger, it should arouse ours too. What other reaction can wickedness be expected to provoke in those that love God? We are far too complacent, aren't we? And we know it. Dr. Tim Clinton, a Christian psychologist, identified six levels of, of anger. The first one we just mentioned, indignation. Indignation, righteous anger. That was what Jesus experienced in the synagogue that day. It's what he experienced when he was in the temple, and the money changers were taking advantage of and abusing the people and getting in the way of their worship of God, profiting off of their poverty in the worship of God. And Jesus took that whip, turned over the tables. And I don't know about you, but I don't imagine Jesus went in there and went like, you know, huh. you know I imagine it was a little bit more violent than that flipping over those tables and driving them out of the temple. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for God's people. You've made it a den of thieves and robbers. Righteous indignation. Second kind of anger is what we would characterize as irritation. <laughs> we can be angry at ourselves. We can be angry at inanimate objects, coffee makers, cars, whatever. We can be angry at those things. We can be angry at circumstances beyond our control, delayed flights. We can be angry at so many different types of things, a host of them. And we are to meet these things with the Spirit's fruit of self-control. We all have things that irritate and that will cause anger to flare or to flash. 
And we need to have these things under the control of the Holy Spirit. Then there is the anger that is directed at others. The anger that's not directed at an inanimate object with no feeling, but directed at your wife, directed at your husband, your child, your mom, your dad, a neighbor, a coworker. It's anger against people. This morning when we read the gospel reading, Jesus talked about, you've heard it say, do not commit murder, but I say to you that if you're, that if you're angry, you are, you are in danger of accomplishing the very same thing by your anger. And there's two things that Jesus is communicating in that passage today. We can't unpack it time-wise entirely, but let me just, let me just say that there's, there's two things He is communicating in all of the Sermon on the Mount. This is being communicated, especially in chapters 5. Well, yeah, especially in chapter 5, where He's interpreting the law. There's two things Jesus is telling us. He's telling us how impossible it is to blamelessly keep the law of God when we truly understand it. The Sermon on the Mount schools us in the reality of our need. It points us in the direction of what holiness and righteousness and kingdom-seeking look like. But if we understand fully what the law tells us, what we heard the kids sing today, if we understand fully what's there, and Jesus is explaining it in Matthew, it is hopeless for us to maintain perfect and perpetual obedience to that. You can say, oh, I, I have never committed adultery, and so I have perfectly obeyed that law. No, you haven't. Well, I've never committed murder, so I've fulfilled that law. No, you haven't. Because when we understand that law, we know how deep it goes and how much we offend. The second thing Jesus is telling us is that anger unmanaged. And that's what you see in that passage. He that's angry with his brother. And then it progresses. He who calls his brother a, a fool. When he, and then the one who goes on and calls him worthless. There's escalating anger in that passage and what Jesus is saying to us is that unmanaged anger and some of you have experienced this some of you are experiencing this unmanaged anger will take you into dangerous places that can bring destruction to your work to your family ultimately to you brings us to the four other levels of anger that he talks about. These are all the fruit of unmanaged anger. Wrath, a strong desire for revenge. Fury, the partial loss of emotional control. Rage, a loss of control involving aggression or an act of violence. Hostility, a persistent form of anger, enmity toward others that becomes rooted in one's personality, which affects one's entire outlook 
on the world and life. How much heartache, how much destruction have we seen from anger that has been nurtured and held in human hearts. Now listen, we're not going to talk a lot about wrath and fury and rage. But let me just pause here for a moment, step away from the message and just say this to you. That if you are battling with a loss of self-control when it comes to anger, that is an issue that needs counsel. If you are a person who, who, who experiences rage in which you cannot stem the tide of what you're saying or doing, that needs counsel. And if you are angry to the point that you are striking or being violent towards your wife, towards your husband, towards your children, I'm talking about correction, I'm talking about spanking, I'm talking about balling up one's fist against a child, throwing people around. You say, Jeff, come on. It's getting a little heavy. This is the church. Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing this for nearly 40 years. Let me tell you something. All of it's in the church. All of it's in the church. Church is not a fortress for perfect people, church is a hospital to help wounded people. And if your anger is taking you places beyond your control, if the Holy Spirit has no access to this in your life, if you do not have emotional control over this arena of life, then this message is not going to get you where you need to go. You understand what I'm saying? There needs to be some one-on-one -on -one talking with somebody who is qualified to help you deal with that. And we can help you deal with that, okay? All right, now let me get back over here to this. Now listen, anger in itself, anger in itself is an emotion. It's not sin in and of itself. But it has a tendency to become so rapidly if it's harbored too long. If it's harbored too long, then it gets in trouble. I love this quote by Dean Goldburn when he says that like the manna, remember the manna in the wilderness, right? You couldn't store it. You had to take what you needed to eat for that day. If you tried to store it, tried to hide some extra in your closet, it would rot. He says, like the manna, it corrupts and breeds worms if kept overnight in the close chamber of the heart. And then it will appear, 
in the morbid shapes of spite, malice, and revenge. The Christian rule is to throw it all away before fermentation commences. Remember what God said to Cain. He did not chastise him for feeling the anger. He felt anger. Maybe he felt misjudged. Maybe he felt unappreciated. Maybe he felt that God was being partial to, uh, to his brother. Maybe he was misunderstanding. Whatever the reason he was experiencing that, God's not chastising him for it. God asked him a gentle question. Why are you angry? Why are you angry? That's a question we need to be asked sometimes, don't we? Rather than just arguing back, why are you angry? He said, if, 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 you'll, if you'll do this, then you can put this all behind you. We can just go forward. But if you don't, if you don't, if you harbor that anger, if you dwell with that anger, then that anger is connected to the sin that is crouching at your door. This is where anger quickly becomes sinful when we don't deal with it quickly. Feeling anger is not the issue. Leaving the door open is. Sin is crouching at the door. If we don't shut it quickly, if we don't deal with anger quickly, we're just leaving the door open for the negative impacts of anger. How do we leave the door open? We leave the door open by nurturing anger into grudges and fixed offenses. That's how we leave the door open. Tim Clinton, I think, again, I put this, I think, in your, um, in your notes, and it's, uh, it's a great quote. I won't go through the whole thing today, but basically he compares our emotions to warning lights on the gauges of our dashboards. This morning, I uh, was driving here, and my warning light said that my, my fuel was low. It said that all day yesterday. <laughs> it, was, it was trying to warn me. And this morning I'm driving, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a man thing. I don't know, because my wife never has this problem. My wife, if, if that light comes on, it's unusual, and we will immediately stop and go get some gas. And I'm saying, oh, come on, you got another 30, 40 miles. That's just, that thing's just kind of working early. It's early detection system. You got, you got time. Let's get where we're going. No, we're stopping right now and getting gas. Not me. I'm, I, it's, it's almost as if there's something in me that's just daring it to run out. <laughs> Am I alone in this? Is, or is that just, is that a guy thing? You know, you're just, or it's a woman thing too, is it some of you? It's just, it's just that I can make it. And, and for a moment this morning, I thought, ah, I can get to church. And then I noticed, then again, it's pouring rain. And, hmm, okay, well, it was warning me all day yesterday I probably should pay attention to it. Warning light. And, and Clinton says that basically when we have anger issues, when anger flares, it's like a, it's like a warning light. Your oil is low or your engine's running 
too hot. And if you don't take care of it, if you don't do something about it, if you don't add the oil so that the engine's lubricated, if you don't add the water or the antifreeze or whatever so that the engine's able to cool itself, if you don't take care of what's going on, eventually it's going to cause you problems. It's going to cause you problems. I like this last line. In automobile maintenance and emotional life, people ignore the gauges at their peril. You with me out there? All right. Does this message apply to anybody but me? All right. Good, 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 good. So, how do we keep the engine of our souls running well? How can we prevent those warning lights from showing up on the dashboard of our souls? And yes, that sounds like a country lyric. And yes, I thought it when I wrote it, but I liked it, so I left it in there. How do we stop those warning lights from showing up on the dashboard of our souls? Well, if you look back at Ephesians chapter 4 in verses 25 through 32 that Andy read for us today, there's a couple of, there's a couple of overriding principles that are important there. One of them is this. We, need, we, we must practice emotional honesty. We have to practice emotional honesty. Honesty. The church should be a place where we can practice emotional honesty. Our family should be places where our children, our spouses, our parents can express emotional honesty. Verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. You know when it comes to anger, there are three types of folks. Two of them are unhealthy. The bottler right, who just stuffs everything. And when we stuff anger, then we are either heading for things like depression or we're heading for major blow-ups that are going to do far more damage to people than if we had just addressed it at the moment. The other kind of person is what we would call the spewer. <laughs> the spewer. Uh, the one that um, instead of being passive-aggressive or letting themselves get alienated, the spewer is the person um, who, who practices no self-control, just vents constantly about whatever is ticking them off at the moment with no concern at all for the feelings of others. Some of you are married to bottlers. Some of you are married to spewers. I love watching people smile or flinch when you say those things and you're watching them. But what we need to be are expressors. We need to be expressors. So a more healthy approach is to, is, to, is to speak honestly and lovingly with one another. Why are you angry? Why are you angry? Tell me about it. Verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, listen. Building up and giving grace are not 
synonyms for cupcakes and butterflies. They're not synonyms for all sweetness and light. Building up and giving grace will often contain the hard work of honesty, communicating, listening, assuring, understanding, trying to come to agreement, working on things together. This is part of what's involved in no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Don't spew. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Don't bottle and just store up the anger, but be a safe place for your spouse, be a safe place for your children, be a safe place for others where you can simply ask them, why are you upset? Why are you angry? And they know that they can tell you what they're feeling without fearing a repercussion that is out of proportion for the moment. Right? Practice emotional honesty. And then secondly, fight. Don't fester. Fight. Don't fester. The dictionary... <laughs> I hesitate using this word, but it was the best one. The dictionary defines fester as to cause increasing poisoning, irritation, or bitterness. But that's the third definition. <laughs> that's, the, that's the third definition of the word fester. The first definition, the primary definition is to generate pus. Ooh. To generate pus. The second one is to putrefy. Doesn't that sound horrible? But that's what internalized anger is doing in your soul. When you harbor it, when you give anger safe haven. Again, you have a moment of anger, caused by a situation, Holy Spirit, help me deal with this. It's caused by uh, another person. You have, you have to have a talk. Have the talk. This made me angry. I'm still feeling some of that. Okay, tell me why you're angry. You have to have those conversations. But if you harbor it, you hold on to it. If you let it fester inside of you, it is just a pus-producing rotting thing in your soul. And that's what you're going to remember from this message. A pus-producing rotten thing. <laughs> well, if we're to deal with anger quickly and avoid it festering, we have to fight it. Fight. Do not fester. Verse 26 again, do not let the sun go down on your anger. How many of you couples out there made that commitment to never go to bed angry? Anybody out there? Yeah. How's that work for you? <laughs> Occasionally I meet a couple that says, and we never have. And I say, yeah, and you lie too. Because you can, you, can, you can come to some agreement and maybe settle an issue and still go to bed angry. 
When Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, here's the principle he wants you to understand, that when it comes to anger, time is your ally or your enemy. It's your ally or your enemy. Deal with anger quickly, and time is your ally. Deal with it quickly. You might be able to enjoy some of the day before the sun goes down. But if you do not deal with it quickly, then time becomes your enemy. You can be angry without sinning. But you can't stay angry without sinning. So here's three ways to fight. Just briefly, I'm going to go to communion. Just briefly, three ways to fight. I always hesitate a little bit because these sound simplistic. They're anything but if you listen to them and you hear them. Here's three ways to fight. Number one, condition your heart daily. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Part of why I try every day to start my day with prayer is because I am inviting the Holy Spirit into my life to help me be cognizant of the opportunities I have to serve Him this day that is beginning, but also inviting Him to help me respond rather than react, to choose life instead of death, to recognize my emotional flare-ups quickly and dispose of them quickly, especially just the daily irritating stuff. Dispose of it. Don't let something give you a bad day. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Condition your heart daily. I don't know any other way to do that personally than my time talking with God and my time in God's Word, bathing, washing my soul in the, those two things, conditioning my heart to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit who has sealed me. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Second thing, Confess, don't conceal. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Well, there, there. see Jeff, see right there? Anger is a sin. We're supposed to put it away. <laughs> and yet the section begins with him saying, be angry and sin not. Well, that, he's only talking about uh, righteous indignation there. If he's only talking about righteous indignation there, then the verse is out of place because what he's talking about are relational issues. It's more than just be angry and be okay because you're righteously indignant. It's be angry because that's part of humanity. That's part of our human life. We're going to be angered by things. It's just part of who we are. He's saying, but here, look at, look at what he puts anger in the middle of. He, he packages it between bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander. In other words, he's saying, put away the anger 
that breeds this stuff, the anger you hold in your heart, the fixed grudges of your soul. Deal with those things. Put that away from you with all malice. And then thirdly, cling to the cross. Let the gospel be big in your heart. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You've heard me say this to you on a number of occasions now, that when a person has the gospel big in their hearts, when they know their own sin, and when they know their own unrighteousness, and when you live in the constant awareness that day by day, God is releasing to you, because you require it, an unceasing stream of cleansing and forgiveness and love. How can you deny that to someone else? The further you live from the cross, the more prideful you become. And pride leads to harboring anger. But when we stay near the cross, when Jesus and his sacrifice are big in our hearts, when we know what he's done for us, then we can condition our hearts and we can be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. We expect that we will irritate each other. We expect that we will wound each other. We expect that we will hurt each other. The Bible's not a naive book. It's why it says things like keep forgiving, keep bearing with one another, keep enduring with one another, because we're awful sometimes. Sometimes we're petty, and sometimes we're just awful. And he's saying, listen, stay close to the cross so that when someone does that, your impulse can be, I don't want to harbor this anger. I want to be kind. I want to be tenderhearted. I want to be forgiving. We're going to need to have a talk. I want to know what's going on, but that's how I want to choose to relate to you. Okay? Condition your heart daily. Confess. Don't conceal. Be honest with God about what you're wrestling with and dealing with. Take it to God quickly. Don't conceal it. All right? And then be sure to cling to the cross.